I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on a reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking about alcohol, specifically New Mexico's crisis of alcohol-related deaths. In a massive eight-part series, New Mexico In Depth recently took a look at many of the reasons drinking kills New Mexicans at a far higher rate than anywhere else in the nation. And it's getting worse, not better. In the thoroughly reported series, reporter Ted Elkhorn discovered a long history of failures by state leaders to address the escalating problem. We're joined by New Mexico In-Depth Managing Editor Marjorie Childress, as well as Ted, who talks about his reporting on this series. First, Ted and Marjorie, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Can we just kind of start out with you telling me a little bit about yourselves? We'll uh, start with Marjorie. Sure. I'm Marjorie Childress. I'm the Managing Editor of New Mexico In-Depth. We're a digital-first nonprofit news organization in New Mexico that produces public policy and investigative reporting. Um, Your readers have probably seen us uh, published in your newspaper over the years. And we've been working with Ted, I think, for four or five years now. Is that right, Ted? I think so. I don't count. Yeah, I'm I'm Ted Alcorn. I'm an independent journalist raised in Albuquerque. I write on a variety of topics related typically to public health or to the justice system. And I I contribute to a lot of national newspapers, but New Mexico is a place that's near and dear to my heart. And I've uh, contributed to covering the state uh, with New Mexico in depth. Let's talk a little bit about how this series came about. Part of what we do on this podcast is to try and peel back the curtain on some of the newsroom conversations that lead to a series like this. What can you tell us about that process? Uh, sure. So we we began thinking about reporting on alcohol in 2020 when we saw that a significant number of people who died from COVID had chronic liver disease and, and that it was more prevalent in the younger people who died. Um, so you know, I mentioned this to Ted because I, kn- I knew that Ted has, you know, he has a wealth of experience reporting in public health reporting. And I just kind of mentioned it to him, you know, is this something that he'd want to look into? He eventually d- did come back to me and say, hey, do you want to do you want to look at, you know, get back to this kind of question of alcohol? And through his reporting, as it turns out, obviously that prevalence points to a really deep problem of alcohol in New Mexico. Um, and it ended up being this kind of comprehensive series that that really went went broad and really looked at the big picture. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how we arrived at, at two and a half years later or two years later at this series. My goodness. So much work, so much reporting went into this. And that's clear to anyone who reads any one of these stories. I think I saw somewhere, Ted, that you talked to over 150 people while reporting this? Yeah, I had never undertaken a project, I think, quite this ambitious, and even at the beginning didn't intend for it to be quite this broad. But like Marjorie said, 
we batted around, you know, our curiosity earlier on at how COVID intersected with alcohol-related injury and death in the state. And I think the key thing for me was at the beginning to see some of the data that shows New Mexico doesn't just have a pretty severe alcohol-related problem. It has by far and away the deepest alcohol-related problem in the entire country. And even for somebody who grew up in New Mexico as a teenager coming of age, very aware of uh, DWI and the state's efforts to address that, you know, I'm a public health trained person. And so I, you know, pretty mindful of problems of addiction, the course through our, our state, but it was still took me by surprise to the extent that I actually like would kind of look at the data a bunch of different ways and see if I was misunderstanding it or if it was, if, if I was, you know, mistaking this, this disparity. And I think that mystery was kind of what drew us in. And then the series really unfolded as, you know, recognizing the scale of the problem, but also its complexity and knowing that to unpack it, we had to look at it from a lot of different angles. Marjorie, is there anything else you want to add about kind of the origin story of the series? No, I think that pretty much captures it. I mean, I, I mean, you know, Ted, Ted kind of ran with it and um, over the course of his, reporting he you know we would get together and he would mention some new data point and I would just be like kind of blown away by it <laughs> I mean like I, I hadn't put I had not registered you know that how many there's one story we um, that really focuses on how many people who've died violent deaths in the state had alcohol in their systems so there's so many connections with alcohol that runs through so many of the problems that we have in our state and and I guess a add a kind of a thought here is just to people listening is that we really shouldn't have a fatalistic attitude about our ability to solve this problem. I mean, I think that's something that I, I've heard quite a bit is there's nothing we can do about this, about alcohol. When in fact in fact, through the reporting, if you you know, if you really dive into the series, you'll see that there are there are strategies that can help people who are struggling with alcohol. And that can reduce the prevalence of its youth in uh, harmful ways. Right. It as a series, it really is solutions journalism oriented, and I think that's beneficial for New Mexicans. Now, Ted, the first story is called "An Emergency Hiding in Plain Sight." New Mexicans are drinking themselves to death at an extraordinary rate, and the state has largely neglected the growing toll. Tell us about that story. Well. You know, if I told you something entirely preventable had killed basically 2,000 New Mexicans last year, that it was killing New Mexicans far higher at far higher rates than our neighbors, and frankly, that it is killing New Mexicans at a much quicker clip than it was even a decade ago, I, I think it would be scandalous. You'd want to know what it was. You'd want to know that public officials were doing something about it. In, in New Mexico's case, that problem exists. It's alcohol-related deaths in the state. And we tolerate it. And frankly, our public officials do almost nothing about it. Some actually seem to abet the issue. Um, so uh, the opening article that you mentioned is trying to lay out the case that this is indeed a problem that's really severe that we shouldn't just put into the background. New Mexico's rate of alcohol-related deaths is about three times this, the national rate. And that we have really not undertaken any of the, indeed, 
um, scientifically studied, um, very reliable measures that Marjorie mentioned to address excessive alcohol consumption. And I guess the question then a little bit is, well, why is that? Um, because clearly these things don't happen on their own. And I wanted to understand a little bit why we might be kind of turning a blind eye to the problem. And I think there's a number of explanations for it. And this article uh, really tries to outline what becomes the series, the whole series, um, by identifying some of those blind spots. One of the most important, frankly, results from New Mexico's, one of New Mexico's greatest successes, which is cutting DWI deaths. In the 1990s, New Mexico had a really terrible DWI problem. We were way, way above the nation's rate of DWI fatal crashes. And I was a kid then, and I remember the Christmas Eve crash in 1992, almost exactly 30 years ago, that drew a lot of attention to this issue. It wasn't the only crash that has galvanized citizens to address DWI, but it did spark some efforts, and there were some public officials. Uh, then Attorney General Udall laid out in a very comprehensive report what the state ought to do. And that was, looking back now at, at that the was Gordon House, right? The driver, yes, that's the driver's the, the driver's name. And uh, you know, there was a a family of people who were killed in that uh, right. accident, largely. And and um, you know, very resilient family. Nadine Milford, who became a, a huge advocate for traffic safety um, in the years that followed. But looking back now, what's remarkable to me is, frankly, how much the state did to address DWI. You go back, the legislature didn't just, you know, open up the law books and want, do one thing. They did everything. They threw the kitchen sink at this. Um, you know, they, they changed the penalties and the sanctions to create more consistent and credible punishment for violating the norms of driving intoxicated. But they also created education programs for servers and restaurants so that they would know not to overserve folks. They boosted enforcement. We see the emergence of some of the sort of specialized DWI units around the state to applying methods to make sure that people not only were aware of enforcement, but that the, that it was happening. Education campaigns rolled out. And I mean, you kind of see you know, all of these things go into action and the state even innovated, you know, by the early 2000s, we were the first state in the country to make it mandatory that people who had a DWI conviction get an interlock on their, on their car, the sort of device that prevents you from starting the vehicle unless you blow into it and show you're not intoxicated. And that still earns Mothers Against Drunk Driving's highest rating of any state. So, we're, you know, we're at the top of, of the sort of innovative list of addressing DWI. And the result was that we cut DWI fatalities, you know, enormously. We felt entirely in line with the national average by the early 2000s. And I think that what I take from that is, one, we can tackle big, complex public health challenges, but you got to address it systematically. The challenge here now is DWI, our focus on DWI really was sort of focusing or, or losing the forest for the trees because DWI is a, is a problem that results from excess and in, inappropriate alcohol consumption, but it's a really small part of the state's alcohol-related problems now. When we look at the data, only one in 10 of alcohol-related deaths in the state occurs on the roadways. Nine in 10 of the alcohol-related deaths are some other kind of death. And that's why we need to draw back and take in a bigger, bigger perspective. 
One of the statistics that you discovered that you noted in your reporting that just blew me away is that one in five deaths of working age New Mexicans is now attributable to alcohol. Yeah, it's pretty striking. That's when we're talking about people that are under 64 years old. And not only is one in five working age deaths of New Mexicans attributable to alcohol, of working age people who were killed last year, more were killed by alcohol than by COVID-19. Let that sink in because, of course, we've scrambled to address the emergency in our midst, which was this epidemic. I think we've all certainly made a lot of sacrifices the last couple of years glad to be on the far side of it. But that's what a society does when you're faced with a real crisis like this. And here we have something that's killing even more people in our midst, in the youngest, in the you know most productive years of their lives. We have not undertaken anything so severe to, to confront it. And, and that's, that also speaks to the way that alcohol does cause illness and injury because people who are drinking excessively see the consequences of that much younger than many of them and many of us, uh, many, many people in general might realize. Many of the deaths due to alcohol are occurring in people that are in their 50s, in their 40s. And frankly, I spoke with a medical director of UNM's uh, medical ICU. He's seeing people in his 30s, p- seeing patients in their 30s who are dying of alcohol-related causes in New Mexico. He told me about a patient who was a waitress, lost probably a social drinker, but lost her job early in the pandemic and was uh went from drinking a little bit a day to drinking pretty much all day long. And it did not take but a few months for her to irreparably harm herself. And she passed away in the ICU uh, there. Her kids couldn't visit her because of COVID restrictions. And she left a husband and two kids. And I think that just, again, this is not a a substance or a, a hazard that afflicts people later in their life. You know, it can sneak up on people and, and, take them away much, much earlier than they they ought to leave us. Part two of the series is called Eyes on the Road. That's where you talk a lot about the DWI efforts that the state has made and try to answer the question of whether or not the focus on drunk driving has kind of missed the bigger problem of addiction. And I think we've kind of talked about what the answer to that question is. In A Missing Ingredient, you kind of pivot and look at alcohol's relationship with violence and with violent crime. What can you tell us about that? It's a really interesting uh, and I think well-accepted, there's a a well-accepted relationship between alcohol and violence. Colloquially, people understand that there's some sort of relationship, but I think people don't realize how intertwined alcohol is with violence and particularly in New Mexico where not only do we struggle with violence you know year in and year out but here we're in the midst of a spike in interpersonal violence alcohol is the most common intoxicant in violent deaths in New Mexico far outstripping illegal substances like fentanyl heroin methamphetamines that that you know certainly are their own concern and you know we focus a lot of attention on but alcohol, alcohol is way more commonly present in the bloodstream of people who die by homicide and also people who die by suicide in the state. We got access to toxicology data that are collected by what is called the violent death reporting system. This takes data from all the medical examiners and coroners and combines it with police records and abstracts it and 
yeah, 42% of homicide victims in the state had alcohol in their blood. And that's something that, you know, we took to law enforcement officials in the state. A, A sheriff told us he looked at that data and was alarmed by it. He went and actually asked his command staff to take a look at some of the recent homicides they'd investigated. And sure enough, of the half dozen that they pulled, five of them had a nexus with alcohol. He said, you know, law enforcement don't often think upstream kind of about those kind of contributors and that this was a little bit of an alarm bell for him. So not only is alcohol an important thing to consider when we're sort of trying to say, how can we have a safer state? How can we build public safety in this state? We really also probably can't address the alcohol use disorders of our residents, of our citizens, without recognizing that those often stem themselves from trauma that they've experienced. Because a lot of people who are exposed to trauma as young as young people, as children, end up coping with that trauma through the use of substances. And so it's really common in the treatment providers that I visited with and in the patients that I spoke with that some untreated underlying trauma was at the root of their addiction. And there's far far too few providers in the state who make it easy for people to treat both their alcohol use disorder and their trauma at the same time. And the UNM Addiction and Substance Abuse Program called ASAP is is one of them. It's a great program south of the university campus a good ways where about 800 patients are getting sort of that best-in-class care, but a lot of people around the state don't even know about it. So I think it's really important to recognize that alcohol and violence are, are connected when we're talking when and when public officials are talking about public safety, they ought to be bringing up alcohol explicitly and unfortunately at least in the records we looked at, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller really weren't talking about it. Right, right. In part four, which is called Poisonous Myths, you write, the spotlight on problem drinking by Native people in Gallup has often distorted its real causes and deflected statewide responsibility. That's an important component of this series because of that mythology. Ted, what did what did you learn about that? Yeah, so Gallup in the western part of the state, town of 20,000, has long been in the limelight when it comes to this issue. For 30 years, it has had this reputation, and I'm using air quotes here as drunk town USA. It's a place that has been spotlighted as having a lot of excess alcohol use and a lot of harms. And I couldn't wrestle with alcohol use in New Mexico without sort of confronting this story, but also um, interrogating it and saying both, you know, what does it say accurately, but what does it obscure? And so in spending time in Gallup in learning the history of alcohol in the area, and more importantly, the relationship and the way that we've talked about alcohol and native peoples in the state, I came to sort of recognize that um, one of the biggest blind spots and maybe one of the most pernicious is that alcohol use disorders and alcohol-related harms in New Mexico are a native problem, and implicitly that they're not anyone else's problem. And frankly, the data show that to be entirely false. There are great racial disparities in alcohol use disorder and in the harms in New Mexico, for sure. But 
the native population in New Mexico is fairly small and, and native people have never accounted for more than 20% of the alcohol-related deaths in the state. Anglo residents, Hispanic residents in the state also have elevated rates of alcohol use disorder compared to their peers in other states and nationwide. And even if you took out, even if you could somehow wave a magic wand and just compare states um, without native people being present at all, New Mexico would still have the highest rate of alcohol use uh, of, of alcohol-related deaths in the country. So the, the first thing I really want to take off the table is that, you know, this isn't a native problem. It's a New Mexico problem. But the disparities are real, and Gallup is exposed to them more than anywhere else. It's a town of 20,000, but it's sandwiched between the Navajo Nation, Zuni Reservation. These are large tracts of of land sparsely, but but populated with a lot of people who are prohibited from possessing or consuming alcohol at home. Those are the longstanding restrictions that have been in place on the reservations and the pueblos. And that means Gallup has become a node where people go in to obviously shop, do other kinds of commerce, but also to buy and consume alcohol. So in some ways, the state, uh, the city, this tiny town really focuses a much larger, a much vaster population from around it. And you see some of the alcohol-related harms that are going on there on the streets of Gallup. And I think I won't go into great detail. The article speaks to it better. But what I take from my time in Gallup, both speaking to the city uh, leadership, looking at the history and talking to clinicians in the area, isn't that that this is a place that's ignored the problem by any means. Frankly, I'd say Gallup has done more and more openly addressed alcohol than almost any other community in the state. And it's because of that spotlight, rightly or wrongly, put on it. But it's a, it's as a city and as a town and as a county has adopted measures that are uniquely trying to address alcohol related harms. You know, they have imposed their own local alcohol excise tax for the county, which is not allowed by any other county. They were the first place in New Mexico to lower their blood alcohol threshold for drink, uh, legal drinking to 0.08, and the rest of the state only followed later. They closed their drive up windows first, and the rest of the state followed. So they've taken all these important public actions. And most recently, they remind me they, they um, have narrowed the hours of alcohol sales, which is another sort of scientifically backed measure for reducing excess alcohol use. Um, so, uh, and, and then, you know, the native clinicians and counselors that I met there who are translating treatment options and making them more accessible and adaptable for native people have shown sort of incredible will and resilience to doing that. So th- there's definitely a silver lining in seeing the sort of lessons that we can learn from Gallup, but also to help it sort of hopefully lift some of the blind spots that we have about the problems in the rest of the state. Absolutely. Um, In part five, you kind of explore how alcohol dependence is New Mexico's biggest untreated substance use problem and how doctors can do more to treat it. Tell us about that. This was... um one of the stories that was maybe hardest to write, it really started with the recognition that when it comes to alcohol and how we can address it as a society, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction that people say, well, we need more treatment. We need better treatment. I I've, don't think that that is an invalid response. People who have alcohol disorders do need treatment. We can see that it's very effective when it's delivered appropriately. 
But I think also it's a little bit of an excuse not to do anything else. <laughs> and so um, there's a lot of focus on treatment, but what, does that, what exactly does that mean and how can we improve access to treatment for folks? And so I went and talked to the people who are doing the best treatment in the state and I talked to their patients. And I ended up benefiting from one gentleman who was willing to share a lot about his experience, who is in his 60s now, but had spent you know, the better part of his adult life uh, addicted to alcohol without really recognizing it, even as it slowly destroyed his marriage, his relationship with the children that he'd raised, ended his professional career, and very nearly ended his life. At times, he, who owned a firearm, was suicidal, was very close to ending his his life. And in the end, he decided he needed to end his drinking instead. But the person who he spoke most openly with about his alcohol use was his clinician. And I think only in talking with him and hearing him out, um, a clinician, you know, his clinician was someone he admired, who he appreciated the care that he'd received from this person over a long period of time. But even he didn't recognize that the clinician had never really made an effort to connect him to treatment, to counsel him to reduce his, his alcohol use. And this, I started to realize, really lines up with something that we see in the science around how doctors address alcohol. They've been trained and regularly ask patients how much they drink. Everybody hears from their doctor, you know, how many drinks you have this last week, that sort of thing. Very few doctors take that and take the next step when a patient says they're drinking excessively to start counseling them about the risks of excess drinking and I'm talking about drinking more than two drinks a day for a man or more than one drink a day for a woman. That's, that is where we see, draw the line on risk. And so medical professionals are very rarely taking that step, spending the time, their scarce time in office to address alcohol use disorder, maybe because they don't think that they can have an impact or that it's going to be meaningful, but the science is there to show that it would be. And so as I started to look at how clinicians fail to sort of recognize these alcohol problems right in front of them, started to see that, you know, the major medical societies in the state, New Mexico Medical Society, the Greater Albuquerque Medical Association, they've done very little continuing medical education on alcohol. Um, they maybe had a grant here or there, but when it's exhausted, they haven't pursued it. So one of the biggest opportunities that we have in the state is for all the doctors and clinicians to make this a front burner issue. Um, we have 73,000 people, the last estimate, of people in the state with an alcohol use, use disorder who aren't who aren't having it treated. And that is more people with an untreated alcohol use disorder than for all other substances in the state combined. So again, wow. when we're thinking about addiction in New Mexico, this is the biggest untreated addiction in the state by far. I think kind of honing in on one of the things you were talking about, I think one of the things that makes this series so compelling is the 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 profiles of the people involved that you're able to kind of weave through the stories and as a reporter it kind of struck me that these are probably hard sources to develop yeah i mean it's always a challenge and I spoke with such a wide range of people for this article, from police officers, judges, probation officers, teachers, 
doctors, patients, bar owners, liquor store owners, lobbyists, politicians. And they all, you know, sometimes people will pick up the phone and spill their guts to you. And sometimes I had two, three, four conversations with someone before they're willing to talk to me on the record. I spoke with a lot of people who really helped shape this series and my understanding who didn't end up being quoted in it just because as a matter of creating sort of these articles that had some symmetry and coherence, there wasn't room for all those voices, but they're there between the lines, I guess. And yeah, some of the most delicate relationships are the ones I think I, I took the greatest care with were people who were sharing it all with me, who had experienced great loss and were courageous enough to be totally honest about it. And um, I'm so grateful to them. And, you know, but I also wanted to take great care to, to express what they told me accurately and compassionately. Part six, we kind of alluded to earlier, is largely about lobbyists and lawmakers. New Mexico's leaders have long <laughs> demonstrated a habit of favoring the interests of those who sell alcohol over those who consume it. And one of the things you write, they've allowed alcohol taxes to shrink to their lowest rates in 30 years. Right. So I think when we think about the ways that we can change the drinking environment, like, like I was saying earlier, you know, there's this impetus, I think, to say we need to provide better treatment. We need to make sure that people who develop an alcohol use disorder can get treated. That's undeniably true, but it's kind of like parking an ambulance at the bottom of a cliff and waiting for people to fall off. And New Mexico, we've seen over the years, an increasing number of people are falling off that cliff. And we're never going to get ahead of a problem by expanding access to treatment alone. Uh, you know, we have, <laughs> we are only treating about one in four of the people with an alcohol use disorder who needs it, but there are generations of people that are developing those disorders right now because of the drinking environment that exists in New Mexico. So then I think the logical next question is what else can we do to get ahead of the problem? And the CDC has looked at the scientific data over decades and over all of the U.S. states and countries and has come up with, you know, a half dozen measures that they say are pretty rigorously evidence-based for reducing excess drinking. And alcohol taxes is kind of what people tell me the centerpiece of them. This should be, on the one hand, I could see how it could be counterintuitive because people usually think of alcohol uh, taxes as being a revenue source, as a way to generate money, but not as a thing that influences drinking. But if you take a step back and think like the basic economics the basic economics of prices is that when prices go up, people buy less of something. That's pretty obvious, I think, to, to anybody in this day and age. And it's true for alcohol, too. Um, and so just as we've used employed taxes to shape consumption of other goods that have some problematic sec uh, secondhand effects, like smoking. Or yeah, whatever. tobacco we've, comes to right? mind. We've, we've imposed pretty serious taxes on tobacco, and it has been one of, if not the most important means of reducing youth smoking, youth initiation, and driving down cigarette smoking rates. There's now, you know, people are experimenting with using taxes to address sugary sweet drinks too, but alcohol, alcohol taxes have been on the books for ages, but we've really kind of ignored them as a tool for reducing excess drinking. 
And that's in spite of the evidence from other states that have bumped those taxes up that showed when the taxes go up, you see a decline in a lot of the alcohol-related harms. You see declines in DWI. You see declines in cir- the liver disease that we know results from excess drinking called cirrhosis. You even see declines in sexually transmitted infections, which we know are uh, you know, occur in kind of risky, uh, risky sex, and that is more likely to occur when alcohol has been involved. So, you know, you have this public policy tool, as one criminologist uh, or public policy professor said, this is a no brainer, you know, you just change a number in the law books, and you get crime goes down, <laughs> you have all these benefits. So why don't we employ it? Well, as I went back through the history, there have been efforts to change alcohol taxes in New Mexico. Most recently in 2017, a group of public health uh, oriented citizens really out of their own time and out of their own effort and energy tried to pass or tried to get a bill passed that would raise alcohol taxes. And, you know, I follow the narrative of that in great detail because it illustrates both the opposition and the way that the alcohol industry organizes against this kinds of measures, but also some of the pitfalls that this group of, you know, passionate but inexperienced advocates run into. And so today now alcohol taxes haven't haven't been as low as they are now uh, since the early 1990s. That was the last time they were increased. And because they're set by the volume of the beverage, which is to say, you know, there's alcohol taxes are levied by the, amount of, by the amount of beverage that's sold, not by its price, inflation erodes them every year. And in, in this, in this case with inflation at record highs at the moment, alcohol is about to get the biggest tax cut that it's had in a generation. Huh. That's really interesting. In part seven, you talk about how solving this problem will take an all of society approach. What, what does that look like? What can you tell us about kind of what the vision for that would be? Well, <laughs> it's um, being a reporter on any issue involves a pretty heavy dose of audacity <laughs> because hereafter, just, you know, a year's worth of effort, I'm writing things down and asking people to consider them to be useful to to the state and to others. So I'm I am mindful of the fact that I'm pretty new to this area and I don't want to overstep my own expertise. So when it came to offering solutions to the state, I didn't come up with them. I turned to the people who have given not just a year, but their whole lives to this issue. I talked to some of the epidemiologists who've been in the Department of Health going back for decades and know both the alcohol issue and New Mexico government intimately. I talked to public health officials economists outside the state who have worked on a wide variety of public policy issues. And I basically said, what, what is a state to do? New Mexico is in uncharted waters to a certain degree. No state has had an alcohol-related death rate as high as we have today. And you know, we have a variety of conditions and problems that, that produce this. So certainly it's not just like it's occurring at random, but no state has had to pull back from where we are. So we're, we kind of have to innovate again. It's like we were in the same position with DWI 30 years ago. We were in a similar position with opioids when they hit our state earlier than others. And I think it means experimenting a little bit where the evidence suggests a high degree of success and evaluating those results and 
and thinking outside the box. Again, to go back to what we did on DWI as a state in the early 1990s, we didn't just settle on changing one thing. We changed everything because in the end, the whole had to be greater than the sum of the parts. And that's going to probably be the case with alcohol-related harms today, too. There's no single silver bullet for addressing this. But some of the measures that these experts came back to me with, which are detailed in that article, you know, include some basic ones just about how you tackle a problem as, a, as government. You know, they said you got to set a goal, an explicit goal of reducing alcohol-related deaths as a state. We got to create potentially some sort of commission that is institutionalized to evaluate evidence, make recommendations, and then continually, like let's say every year, report to the legislature progress so that we know that this isn't something that's going to get pushed under the rug again. There's some major policies that we could pass. Nobody said that passing an alcohol tax increase would be enough to address the issue, but nobody I spoke with said anything else would be more important than that. So raising alcohol excise taxes in the state has to be uh, what they, what one person told me, the centerpiece of, of efforts. And then there's a whole range of other issues. There's ways to tackle alcohol and its nexus with violence. There's ways to talk about and address the disparities that Native people in the state experience when it comes to alcohol use disorder. And there's even ways to to rejuvenate and revive our efforts to reduce DWI, which frankly have really stalled in the last 15 years. We haven't seen any progress in reducing DWI. And even in the last year, um, we've seen fatal intoxicated driving crashes tick up a little bit. So in that case, we might adopt a lesson from our neighbor of Utah, which just passed for the first state in the nation, a lower blood alcohol threshold of 0.05. This is kind of standard around the world. Almost every middle and high income country that you could name has this 0.05 threshold. In the US, we still keep ours relatively lax in most states at 0.08. But in Utah, after they passed this crash, DWI crashes there fell by 20%. And um, so, you know, that's definitely a lesson we could look to as well. And one of the things that you certainly go into in your reporting is that this is not, you spoke to an epidemiologist who said that this kind of has, there's been a refusal to address this by going up to the highest levels of state government for more than 30 years. Yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's disappointing, I think, when we hear about elected officials who have been, who have let science seemingly guide a lot of their actions, who, when it comes to alcohol, turn their back on it. And in this case, talking with the sort of lead epidemiologists, these are scientists are employed by the state. They're nonpartisan. They're there to advise governors of both parties. All of them told me that when they brought alcohol, the, the measures that, that are scientifically recommended to address alcohol to the, to the staff of the governors that they work for, that they were ignored. One epidemiologist who has worked, uh, worked under the current governor until 20, 2020 said that he felt like he had to mince words in his recommendations around alcohol. And when he specifically approached the staff of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to ask for permission to talk uh, with legislators about raising alcohol taxes, that they, he was shot down. They wouldn't let him do it. So um, I think it's, it's 
pretty disturbing that governors would not follow the science when um, it's pointing to something that's killing thousands of their citizens. And um, unfortunately, as as a legislator, Jerry Ortiz Pino told me, it's it's not like there's <laughs> no opponent in this arena, right? Alcohol is a big business in New Mexico, and there are people that are pretty opposed to change. Um, by a pretty conservative estimate, the amount of alcohol consumed in the state each year would fill 72 Olympic swimming pools, and it will almost certainly raises more than a billion dollars in revenue, revenue that goes through 2,800 businesses licensed to sell alcohol, restaurants, bars, grocery stores, gas stations, even state parks and ski areas. And those are all palms that are greased by this commodity. And that is a very formidable, that makes for a very formidable coalition of people that don't want the status quo to change. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, uh, big campaign contributions follow. Yeah, we, we looked at uh, campaign money and saw that after the legislature killed that measure to raise taxes in 2017, Anheuser-Busch showered them with $30,000. The state's biggest alcohol distributors, Premier Admiral Beverage and Southern Wine and Spirits, all gave the maximum amount to then-candidate Michelle Lujan Grisham's campaign. So, um, you know, and this goes to both sides of the aisle. And so it's not a it's not locked up in what what we're used to in our country of traditional partisan gridlock. This involves everybody. Nobody's hands are clean. You finished the series, Ted, by asking how much is safe to drink. And I think we answered that a little bit earlier. Tell us again what that amount is. Well, and I'll just say, you know, you can't report on this without I couldn't report on it anyway without reflecting on my own habits because I drink. I'm not here and, and many of the people, experts I, that I spoke with in the article drink, and I'll just say, I should probably say at the outset, nobody said that it was realistic or reasonable to prohibit alcohol use. There's no slippery slope in what I'm describing to a world where alcohol isn't inaccessible. We're talking about measures that would just better regulate its consumption and sale. And, you know, that's pretty in keeping with the science around how much it is safe to drink because it's you know, we provide an article, as you allude to, to just help people understand their own habits and to evaluate the risks for themselves. And there's some really great online tools, actually, that in a couple of simple questions can sort of elicit from anyone your drinking habits and then give you a little bit of a readback on, you know, what you ought to be thinking about. But, um, this, you know, there's pretty clear, it's pretty clear now that there's no health benefits to drinking. The ones that we we thought existed for heart health um, have kind of evaporated as the science has gotten better. And to the contrary, it's pretty clear that alcohol use starts to cause risks to health at one one drink, more than one drink a day for, for women who are experience higher blood alcohol thresholds for any given amount of drinking, and two drinks a day for men. And um, at any level above that, you're posing some risk to yourself and it, the risk grows as the volume drank grows. So we provide some some guidance on that and also some tips on how to talk to family members who might have an alcohol use disorder in a way that's helpful and some resources around the state to get help either for yourself or somebody that you care about. Excellent. What do either of you want to add that we haven't already talked about? 
Well, I would just say that one of the things now that we're trying to do is to learn from readers. And I did speak with a lot of people for this article, but talking about alcohol problems in our communities is hard. There's, there's a lot of stigma around this. People experience a lot of shame. It's a health issue, but that's not how we've traditionally treated it as a society. And so, um, you know, I'm, again, extremely grateful for the people who share their stories with me openly. And now we've created a questionnaire to hopefully hear stories from other people around the state. So it is linked in every single article on New Mexico In-Depth's website. Or if you just type in, I think, help us learn New Mexico In-Depth, it will take you to that questionnaire. But it's a place where you could anonymously share a little bit about your own experiences with alcohol in the state. And ideally, we're getting responses in with contact information to reach back out to folks, we may be able to do some further reporting, learning from New Mexicans, both about how they've experienced alcohol in the state and what they think the state should do about it. So that's my one plug to listeners would be to, again, search any of the articles on New Mexico Depth's website where the alcohol issue is covered and to scroll down to the bottom and there's a link where they can share their story. Excellent. Uh, Marjorie? No, I would just ditto that. Uh, we would love to hear from New Mexicans about how alcohol has impacted their lives. And we actually have, it is linked at the bottom of each article, but there's also um, um, a link to it right on the homepage of uh, New Mexico In Depth. So that's nmindepth.com. And thank you, Damien. Well, absolutely. Marjorie, Ted, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Marjorie and Ted for joining us this week. You can follow New Mexico In-Depth's reporting on issues like this and much, much more at nmindepth.com and in the Las Cruces Sun News. Also, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.